What's going on, everybody? I'm today's host on Adventures in DevOps. I'm Will Button, and joining me in the studio today is Jonathan Hall. Hey, everyone. How's it going? So today, we're going to talk about deployment strategies, right? Yeah, I like this topic. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Cool. I, I'm looking forward to it because for whatever reason, most of my experience with deployments has just been, well, in a best case scenario, a rolling deployment. There have been more than one scenarios, though, where it's been bring down production, do the deployment, and then bring production back up. So does that really count as a strategy? I think that's the hope and pray strategy. Or, or <laughs> <variation>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Cool. yeah, so yeah, I, I think deployment strategies are fun because there's, there's a lot of them, and some of them are pretty sophisticated and interesting. And then, of course, if we're going to talk about deployment strategies, we probably should also touch on the topic of undeployment strategies or like rollback and, and roll forward and those things. So maybe we'll get into that. So, yeah, you, you've done rolling deployments. And uh, maybe, maybe you could start with that. Just explain what you've done and, and what that is for anybody who's not familiar with that term. Yeah. So for from my point of view, my perspective could be good, could be bad. A rolling deployment is where you have a, a cluster of devices, whether those are physical servers, virtual servers, Docker containers, whatever that are providing your application. And when you release a new version, you replace just a few of them at a time. And it's for me, I've typically done it with a percentage. So we'll take down like 25% of the containers and roll out the new versions. And then whenever those pass their health check, we'll do another 25% of those. And so at any given point, you've got during the deployment process, you've got a mix of the new deployments starting to take traffic and then the older deployments that are continuing to serve traffic. And you just roll through those until you've completed the deployment. Right. So you end, so obviously this works when you're doing a distributed service of some sort, or you have multiple servers, it could be physical servers, but uh, often like in Kubernetes, you're going to be talking pods or, or containers. So just, just for clarity, this, this discussion is going to be very limited. If you have a single server running a single instance of your service, <laughs> you don't have a yeah. whole lot of options there. <laughs> you kind of need at least two servers, uh, <laughs> two, two instances before any of this starts to mean anything. <laughs> Yeah, so rolling deployments, that's, that's easily the one I have the most experience with. And part of the reason is that's just the def- kind of the default, or it's a version of that is the default with Kubernetes anyway. And it's 
it's kind of it's almost the the simplest version of a theoretically zero downtime deployment. I mean, you could always take all your services down and then bring them all up again at the new version, but that's a bad idea if you want your service to be online during the upgrade. I said that's the simplest. That might not be true. The simplest might be the blue-green deployment pattern, which can work on as few as two servers, right? So I, I think this became popular before even Kubernetes and, and Docker were a thing. Right. But the idea is that you would just, you know, back when you would you would deploy to the server, you would basically install two servers. So you'd have server A and server B. And you would you would have your load balancer or your router or or DNS or whatever mechanism point to either A or B. And so suppose it's pointing to A and you're ready to upgrade, you would just upgrade B to the newest version and then point that mechanism to B. And then at that point, A is on the old version. And you have a really easy rollbacks strategy there. If you discover that B is broken in some way, you just switch the mechanism back to A again. So that's the basic concept of a blue-green deployment, which is super simple, at least conceptually. And it has that built-in rollback capability for one version of rollback. Now, if, you, if you've uh, upgraded to six versions and then discover a critical bug, then the rollback is a little more involved, of course. <laughs> but then is it blue-green uh, or is it uh, blue, green, red, orange, yellow, violet? <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> Roy G. Biv. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose... <laughs> I suppose you could have as many servers as you want for colors, right? <laughs> but I, typically, it's done with two. You could have more than that if, if you thought it made sense in your situation. You mentioned doing it via DNS or your load balancer, right? It seems like load balancer is going to be the, the quicker way to do that, because if you do it via DNS, then you're dependent on DNS updates, which in some scenarios can take a few minutes or the old uh, if you're the the old so I, WordPress answer upgrades. Yeah. So I've done upgrades with DNS before that this sort of scenario. And what we would do this this would usually be before the days of continuous deployment and continuous delivery. But we would anticipate that on Friday we're going to do a big upgrade. So let's change that TTL on the DNS down to 60 seconds from the normal of 24 hours or whatever it was. Right. So we, we do that like a week in advance. So hopefully everybody's DNS caches are, are cleared out and they have that short TTL so that when we make the switch, if if we have to do a, a switch back or something, it's not a big lag wait. Now, if you're doing this on a continuous deployment sort of scenario, and honestly, I wouldn't really advise that. This probably isn't the best solution for continuous deployment. Uh, but if you were, I would I would probably use a 60-second TTL just across the board all the time for this sort right. of thing, which does mean more load on your DNS server and slightly slower response times. If it's a web service, then every almost every client request has to look up the DNS and wait for that. So there are drawbacks for sure. Right on. Which is why I don't recommend this necessarily as your go-to for a new deployment. Now, a lot of a lot of teams are doing this because they have been forever, and you know that that's not a bad thing, but it has certain drawbacks. So it's not necessarily the one I would reach for when deciding on a new strategy. Yeah, and I think that's a good point there is like all of these deployment strategies have their pros and cons and it's important to understand those because for your given environment, those pros and cons are going to influence your decisions and what may be a good solution in one environment may not work out so well in the other, not because it's a bad deployment strategy, but just because of the nature of your environment. Right, exactly. Of course, of course, and I already said that blue green is fairly simple, and and that is its biggest advantage. If you're a single person doing some sort of deployment, this might be something to consider, just because it's easy to manage. Uh, but but like I said, there are drawbacks. So 
Another strategy I've used in the past is, I didn't know it was called this at the time, but it's, it's called a canary deployment. And the basic idea, it, it, it comes from the metaphor of a canary in a coal mine, I guess, where if you're working in a coal mine and you don't know if the air is safe to breathe, you send a canary down. And if the canary comes back, then everything's good. <laughs> canary doesn't come back. <laughs> It's suffocated and poor canary don't go down there either because you're going to suffocate. So, <laughs> or, or, or maybe the workers would carry a canary. I guess they'd carry a canary around in a cage. And if the canary fell over dead, then like, okay, time to get out of here. Anyway, I don't know how it works. <laughs> I'm not a coal miner. <laughs> Something about torturing canaries and coal mines. So that's the concept here is you basically do a deployment. So this would be, this would be a situation where you have multiple instances, probably at least three, maybe as many as dozens or hundreds, and you upgrade maybe a single instance or a very small percentage of instances to the new version, maybe 5% or 1%, depending on your, your risk tolerance. And you see how it works. And if you see no problems, then you would deploy the rest. So I did this when we were doing uh, spam filtering 10 or 15 years ago. I think we had something like eight or 10 uh, servers, virtual servers. And, and we, we were treating these, these were the, the in the pad, cattle versus pets uh, analogy, these were treated as pets. So, nice. but we would well because we they're canaries always, right yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we would uh, we would typically upgrade a single server and, and watch the logs and make sure nothing crazy is happening for an hour or something before we would upgrade the other i don't remember five or eight or whatever servers it was so that was that was a case of manual canary deployments i mean the the, the deployments were done by logging in by ssh and running dpkg basically but it was the same concept yeah so you can you can do the same thing with modern tools they, they make this fairly straightforward so if you're using Kubernetes or, or a Kubernetes distribution that, that handles this, you can, for example, tr target 5% of instances or a single instance out of however many, upgrade that one, and then watch your monitoring, watch your graphonographs, watch your Prometheus, watch whatever metrics you're, you're interested in, make sure it's working correctly before you upgrade the remaining instances. So, so that's, that's the basic concept there. And that sounds like it's a very manual process to check on the status of your canary. You got to know which ones of your environment are the canaries and then watch the logs, watch the metrics and have a certain level of confidence that your logging is detailed enough to catch anything that might be going on, right? Yes. Although I'm, I'm certain, I don't know names of tools, but I'm certain there are tools that will automate a lot of this for you. So you could, for instance, automatically deploy to one instance. And as long as your 500 error account and your response times and whatever metrics you set don't exceed a certain threshold by a certain time, then it will do the rest of the upgrade. So maybe you have a few small metrics that are critical. Mm -hmm. You could automate that. I, again, I don't know the tools that do this. Um, I haven't used them, which is why I don't know what they are, but I've heard of them. So it can be automated to an extent. Right. And the truth now this is the interesting part because this concept of canary deployments it, if you start to think about it it kind of opens up a whole can of worms like you could you could i could easily see someone saying if if nothing goes wrong for 10 minutes let's upgrade to 10% and then after an hour we'll go to 25 and after 3 hours we'll go to 50 and after a day we'll go to 100 you know or, or whatever you could you could come up with whatever sort of metrics or or percentages you want and you might even do it on a per per feature basis. Maybe, maybe it's a simple feature. You're confident that it, it's a simple bug fix or something. You're confident. You're just going to deploy to everything right away. But some other thing, you're like, we don't really know if we want to do this. We don't, we're not sure of the impact. Maybe it's a performance-related thing. We're not sure if it's going to fix things or not. So we want to be really conservative. We only want to send this to 1% of traffic. Or or maybe, maybe you only send it to like 100 requests. <laughs> 
or, or something really limited, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and then you see, how does that work? So how do you start to control this stuff? And, and this is where this is where I think deployment strategies start to get really interesting because you get to the cl- you get to the point where your your deployment of your code can potentially be decoupled from the deployment of a feature. And you do this through feature flags. So imagine you have a feature flag tool that handles your canary deployments for you. So in other words, you just do a standard rolling deployment, but all of your new features are turned off completely. And then on the feature level, you say, all right, now this risky feature, I'm going to turn it on for 1%. So all your servers have been upgraded, but the feature that you're you're testing has not been. So you see where I'm going with this, right? It starts to get, it gets kind of tricky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because then from like a, an oversight point of view, you've got all these different variables to track. Like wh- what state is this in? Is it... Is it released to all the servers and is it behind a feature flag? And like you get all of these different options that you have to consider to be able to determine the current state of production, right? Exactly. So so what, what you end up with, if you're doing that sort of thing, if you're using feature flags to control, to do controlled releases, not just a, a, a toggle, but a controlled release of a feature, then you have to think about this at two levels. You have to think, what's our actual deployment strategy of the software? And are we doing blue-green or rolling deployments? Or maybe you still do canary deployments at that level. But then at the feature level, you have the same question again. And, and at that point, it, at the feature level, you're probably just doing some, some variation of a canary deployment or a percentage or an A-B test. You know, A-B tests and feature flags are almost the same thing when you think about it. It's just a different, a different use of the same tool. Right. So I've, I've seen, uh, we, we did this a lot at booking.com, uh, which was uh, at the time, I guess they still are, but at the time I was working there, they were famous for, for doing, I think at the time they, they boasted the most AB tests of any company in the world. I don't think that's true anymore, but they still do a lot of AB tests. And we just, we would do this all the time. We would, we would set some feature that we're, we want to measure the performance. Is it going to improve database performance? We would put it put it in this sort of feature flag or A/B test. We'd deploy it to production, and then we could toggle it on. And if if it was worse, we could turn it off immediately without doing an actual rollback. Right? You just turn off that feature. You don't have to roll back the code. So that's yeah. I mean, that, that's another obvious benefit of, of the feature flag concept. Uh, it's it's useful for so many things. In fact, I, t- I talked about this topic with uh, Joy Eberts from Split. Uh, on my podcast not long ago. I'll put that in the show notes. But if you're interested in all the different ways you can use feature flags, some of them were not obvious to me. She's She was uh, an expert on this topic and, and really was a really enlightening conversation. So I'll, I'll include that in the show notes too. Oh, right on. Um, but yeah, for, for deployment, I, I don't think everybody should necessarily use feature flags in this way. Although it's it, it's kind of an advanced a- approach, but it's not that difficult. Like you, you don't have to really invest a whole lot of time to get involved in using a feature flag tool. I mean, you can, if you want to do it from scratch, it's probably going to take a long time. Right. But you can use a tool like, 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 uh, like split, or there's a dozen AB testing and and feature flag tools out there that have reasonable pricing, uh, for, for small projects. So if you want to consider that option, it's a great way to go. And it gives you a lot of flexibility and a lot of controls to, to manage what you're doing. Yeah. We use feature flags quite extensively when I was with Aptiv. Because that was a, a mobile app and the mobile apps talked to the backend API. And so the API had the ability to turn different features on and off. And it turned out to be really handy because when you're dealing with mobile apps, they work great until, you know, you find someone who's using your app that hasn't updated their app in two years. Right. And so feature flags were really cool then in that, that scenario to be able to roll them out, roll out new features, make sure that it was handled gracefully by all the different clients that you were currently supporting 
and then quickly turn it off if things backfired. Yeah. So another another topic or, or maybe a term that's useful to, to be aware of is the concept of progressive delivery, which is kind of what this canary deployment concept is about. The idea of delivering your software a little bit at a time. So if, if you're interested in this topic, that's one to look at. I, of course, had another episode about that on my podcast. I can put that in my show notes too, <laughs> uh, with, with, uh, someone from Circle CI. So that, you know, they, they really, uh, know that topic very well too. But yeah, I, so I, I think, I mean, I, I generally, as I said at the beginning, I generally use rolling deployments just because it's kind of the default with Kubernetes. Right. Um, but then I, I, I do the canary stuff. Usually when I do it, I do it at the feature flag level rather than at the deployment level. Yeah, that makes sense because it seems like you get a, a lot more control to to either move forward or recover. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Right. You have more control. The downside, and as you said at the beginning, you know, there's pros and cons on all of these. The downside to using feature flags only for canary deployments is if you have something that literally breaks the service and you do a rolling deployment, you're, you're kind of stuck. I mean, you, you have to roll back. You, you don't have the safety that you get if you just upgrade 1% of your, your services first. But if you're doing continuous integration, by, by which I mean the practice of integrating at least daily, if not more often, I don't mean just a CI pipeline. I mean, you're actually integrating your code daily so you don't have long-lived feature branches. If you're doing that and you're doing continuous delivery, usually the the risk of any individual deployment is pretty low because you're, you're not making any big, risky, untested changes uh, all at once. So if you, if you do true CI and CD, I'm usually pretty comfortable relying on rolling deployments with a good rollback strategy in place. I don't usually feel like the Canary deployment is necessary at that stage. Where I did feel like Canary deployments were useful was when we were waiting two to three weeks to do a release and there were manual upgrades like I was talking about at the beginning, you know, when I was doing the spam filtering 15 years ago. I didn't know what CI and CD were back then. I, we were just <laughs> kind of old school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Canary deployments eff- effectively gave us a lot of uh, safety back then. So I think something that ties into this along the same lines is during your part of your deployment strategy is handling that in between situation specifically around breaking changes because like during that deployment window whether that's a few minutes or or a day whatever it is right for your environment you'll have a mix of of responses and and i guess to better illustrate that is like a breaking api change where you change the api payload how do you making sure that your clients get the right payload that they understand how to how to respond it really ties into supporting mobile applications where you may have people that go years without updating their app right and so how do you deal with that's that a, that's a really good point so yeah i mean on the on principle you you need to make sure that your services can always run simultaneously at different versions to, at some spread of versions 
maybe it's only maybe you only ever have two simultaneous versions, but you might have more than that, depending on your situation. You know, I've, I've seen places where you might have four or five versions of a service running at once, especially if you have multiple canary deployments going on at once, mm-hmm. where you have, you know, somebody's testing feature A with this set of canary deployments and feature B with this set. It gets really complicated and confusing when you do that, which is one reason feature flags are nicer for, for that level of control. But I've seen it. The bottom line is you need to make sure, and here I'm just, let, let's let's start with a simple scenario. You're just doing a PHP-based web app. So there's no there's no mobile clients out there that are that are months old. You you have you do have clients that are out there, but they're minutes old. Whatever JavaScript was loaded in the last five minutes might still be caught talking to your server after you upgrade, right? Right. So you need to, in that case, you still need to make sure that your newest version understands the request backward compatible with the, the last version or, or or whatever window you think is reasonable for someone to leave their browser tab open, which is probably something like a few hours or something. No way. I've got browser tabs that are older than my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I like the web apps. Like uh, WhatsApp does this. If you use WhatsApp in the web, it will occasionally pop up. And I think Slack does the same thing. It says, there's a new version. Hit refresh to get the newest version. Yes. So if you have something like that in there, you can you can mitigate some of this. But the, the point is you need to maintain some level of backward compatibility, at least for a few minutes. And, and realistically, that probably means for at least a few hours. So in practice, my rule of thumb is that every uh, I, I don't remove, I don't break functionality until I'm certain it is not being used for something like 30 days or, or whatever. You know, it's not a hard number, but you know, just make sure. And so that way, if you have version A and B of your server running at the same time, and you you may or may not, depending on how you have your load balancer configured, you may or may not have a single client talking to only one version of the server. You know, they might be talking to both. They might send 16 requests and, and half of them go to server A and half go to server B. You might configure them to all go to the same server or not. It just depends on what your application does. Point is that you need to be prepared for, at minimum, that a client that made a request on server A after an upgrade is now talking to version B and they need to not just panic and, and things crash. Right, yeah. Now, once you add a mobile app to the situation or a desktop app or, or anything like that or, or clients and data centers who are you know installing software talking to you, then that window becomes much longer and you're probably talking months, if not years, uh, that you need to maintain backward compatibility. Now, that's much easier said than done. We can talk about some strategies on how to do that if we want to, but maybe that's another episode entirely. But <laughs> you, you need to maintain that backward compatibility. Our strategy in one scenario, again, going back to when I was at Aptive, we had, there was a point where it was down to literally one person who had a really old version of our app and our customer service team pulled up their email address, emailed them, scheduled a call with them and talked them into upgrading over the phone. <laughs> yeah. As a software developer, this is one reason I really like SaaS. The, the spam filter I talked about, uh, when I started that company, we weren't a SaaS. We were selling servers that would be physically installed in people's offices or, or in, their, in their data centers, usually right next to their Exchange server that, that was a, also a physical server. Yeah. Right? And that was such a pain to get those things upgraded. A certain percentage, maybe 15 or 20% of the people would put it behind firewalls and they wouldn't let us connect. So we couldn't do automated upgrades or they would. And sometimes it was just a security policy that they were rightfully paranoid. In other cases, it was specifically so that we wouldn't upgrade without telling them. So it's a, it's a pain. If you're doing a SaaS, though, then that's in your control and you can do your upgrades when you want to. So if you're thinking about doing a spam filtering company, well, A, don't do it. It's, 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 it's a losing proposition now. But but B, 
do a SaaS instead of installing servers on people's <laughs> data centers. <laughs> so I, I mentioned at the beginning rollback. So I, I think that's a, a good thing to, to talk about too, especially in, the, in, in light of this compatibility concern. It's really important, what, really with any of these strategies, it's important that you have a, you have a, a strategy in mind for how to do a rollback in case something is broken. Right. And, and there's at a really high level, there's two strategies that I, that I work with. One is just called rollback, which is literally you start running an old version of the software. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing blue green, that's usually pretty easy. That just means talk to the old server now instead of the new one. Um, if you're doing, if you're using Kubernetes or, or anything Docker based, it just, it can just mean use the old Docker image instead of the newest one. Um, whatever, whatever your build artifacts are, the ones you were using before you use those again, that's a rollback. The other approach is what's called a roll forward. Right. And the idea there is that you basically never go backwards in terms of your built artifacts, but you go backwards in terms of your, whatever code is in Git. So if you discover that the, the code you just merged 20 minutes ago crashes for whatever reason, rather than just using the old version, you just do a revert in Git, and then you do the same process to roll forward again. So you basically just roll a new release that, that has features removed. And there are pros and cons to both of these. The, the thing I really like about roll forward is that your rollback is exactly the same as a, roll for, as a, as a normal deployment. So you don't have two, two different approaches to take. Yeah, exactly. So in that sense, it's, it's a lot simpler. The drawback to roll forward is sometimes it's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) In particular, when you have a destructive database uh, migration, right? You have a database migration that drops a column, for example, uh, and you, and you just revert that from Git. Now your, your code no longer matches your database and and now you're in in a screwed up situation. So there are, there are some strategies you can use to minimize the necessity for destructive database migrations and things like that that make these rollforwards problematic, but you can never completely eliminate them. So that's something to be aware of. Uh, I don't have a silver bullet answer for anybody. Yeah, those are the two high-level strategies that I'm aware of. And I prefer rollforward, except in the cases when it's impossible, and then rollback is really the only option there is. So Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Although I fought rollforwards for a long time, and, and part of that was based on my experience prior to learning what roll forwards were. Prior to that, I was working for a company in the healthcare field where when a deployment blew up, we had actual trauma patients across the U.S. that couldn't receive emergency medical care. And so we were always deploy, any sign of trouble, immediately roll back. No thinking, no talking, no evaluating, no troubleshooting. Roll back because there's some people in hospitals somewhere that would really like you to get your shit together. And then when I left that environment, you know, I just had that ingrained with me and I went to work for a team that, that was using the roll forward strategy. And I I fought that for a long time just because we're humans and we tend to resist change. But Uh now I'm, I'm in the, the roll forward camp specifically for the reason that you mentioned that your roll forward strategy is the same as your, deploy strategy. So you put the power back in the hands of the developers. Hey, here's what's going on. Here's what you see. Do a git revert. Or I've seen scenarios where it was really obvious what the problem was. And so they'll just patch it and roll that out and and fix it as part of the roll forward. You brought up a really good point. Another drawback to roll forward is it's usually slower than rollback. It depends on what mechanism you have. I mean, but but usually it takes longer to do a revert wait for CI to complete, uh, build a new Docker image and so on, than it does to just 
point to the latest, the last Docker image or the last AMI or whatever. So if you're in a situation where response time is of utmost importance, like in a hospital type of situation, then rollback probably is the better choice. Yeah. If you're just selling uh, socks online, then maybe roll forward is, is good enough. <laughs> right. Because you'll have some frustrated clients, but at the end of the process, they're all still going to be alive. So it's yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> if you do rollback, though, I would urge you strongly to give the power to your developers. Uh, you don't want your developer to have the power to roll out, but not roll back. Because yeah. then you're in a situation where they have to call someone else. You have silos of, of knowledge and of capabilities. So whatever it takes, give your developers the power to do that rollback on their own without without waking up an ops guy <laughs> if, if necessary. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I can see that getting understated in certain scenarios because you you know, a lot of people don't think about rollbacks or roll forwards until they're in that scenario. So yeah, when you're building your, your deployment strategy, it's really important to include that as part of it and make sure that it's well documented, that they're trained or, and, and as intuitive as possible. And I would encourage you to test it frequently, you know, yeah. at least once a week, maybe do, just do a rollback just to make sure it works. Make sure the, the button in whatever interface you build does the thing it's supposed to do because you don't want to discover it's broken during an outage. Yeah, you know, that's a really, a really good segue. It's probably going to take us entirely off course. I'm a big <laughs> fan of doing that in production. And you get, I tend, I tend to get resistance to do that. People are like, oh, no, we don't want to take down production. And it's like, well, we can take it down now while we're all sitting here looking at it. Or we can wait for it to go down. And it's guaranteed the only time it's going to go down is in the middle of the night when you're deep in sleep and on call. So, you know, yeah. let's do it now while everybody's standing here. And and the same thing with backups. Test your backup yeah. procedure. <laughs> <laughs> Just because that data is sitting in a tarball somewhere on, on, on uh, S3 doesn't mean you can restore it quickly. <laughs> right, yeah. Guilty as charged on that one. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to restore your backups to production all the time. You know, you can restore them to staging or some throwaway environment, but make sure you know you know how to do it and make sure it works and that the data is actually there and all that stuff. So, yeah, we could do another episode on on disaster uh, recovery, I guess. Yeah, that'd be a fun talk. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there are other deployment strategies and probably even other rollback strategies, but I've kind of reached the end of my level of knowledge on this topic. So, yeah, and, unless we want to hash out any more details here or make up some of the strategies on the spot. I've, I think we've covered the big ones. We could do the, um, let's see what buzzwords we can tie in. We can do the, the Web3 blockchain deployment. So your CICD. Too. Yeah, your CICD uses AI to mint an NFT that your servers then transfer to their wallets to deploy. We could get funded for that. Yeah. Sponsor <laughs> us now. <laughs> right. I, I guess the other deployment strategy I used to use was uh, burn a CD and mail it to your customers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> or a floppy disk even before that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was horrific. Like that was really painful yeah. doing that. Uh, I did that when I was more heavily involved in the Windows world. And, you know, you would you would burn a CD, but then you had system DLLs that you were dependent on that that wouldn't be there for whatever reason. and Oh, yeah. We're trying to flash a BIOS when you're running <laughs> Windows XP and you had to do it with a DOS utility. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss those days at all. No, not at all. 
I do in a way, but but not that aspect of it. <laughs> All right. Anything else? No, I I think that was good. I was that was actually helpful for me because I knew there were other deployment strategies, but never had a reason or motivation to understand them. But that was enough enough of an overview for me to understand that I'll probably stick with rolling updates with mm-hmm. possible exceptions that I now know how to identify. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I need to I need to evaluate a feature flag tool for uh, I'm I'm not working on a project now that needs it, but uh, I, I kind of want to have a go to feature flag service and library to go to. So like I mentioned earlier, I interviewed someone from Split. So I'll, I'll be looking at that one and I'll, I'll be looking at others, too. A few open source ones, maybe. But uh, maybe one of these days I'll have a pick related to a feature flag tool. I was really happy with the one that we used at Aptive, but I'm drawing a complete blank on what the name of it is right now. Otherwise, I would use that for my pick for this episode. Mm-hmm. So I'll take that as a to-do item. <laughs> All righty. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Speaking of picks. Yeah. You got anything for us this week? Uh, I do. You may recall uh, several episodes ago, I was excited about a book I was reading called A Radical Enterprise by Matt K. Parker. Yes, uh, I've been I, looking I, forward I, to hearing about this. Yeah, so I, I pre-picked it before I'd read it because I was mm-hmm. excited about the, the topic. And then I, I think I tentatively picked it a, a couple chapters in. Well, since then, I have had Matt Parker on my podcast and we had a great conversation about the book. And I am very enthusiastic about the book. So I, I, I wholeheartedly picked a Radical Enterprise by Matt K. Parker. If you have read, uh, there's some other books in the same genre. If you have read Reimagining Organizations or Holacracy or Humanocracy or Corporate Rebels, these are all books that are kind of in the same idea of like new management thinking and, and ways to do more collaborative working. And it really ties into the whole agile software movement, especially the aspect of autonomous teams and self-organizing teams. And by extension, then, of course, this, the DevOps philosophy of cooperation and working together for common goals. So it really is in line with, in my view, it's in line with this whole idea of agile software development, DevOps. It's a good book. It's a fun book. It's maybe a little bit optimistic. I mean, it's a collection of case studies of actual companies doing these things. So it's not just like, wouldn't it be nice if we could all get together and, and, and sing Kumbaya? It's it's actually people doing this successfully. So there, there is some hope uh, in that regard. But yeah, that'll be my pick for today. The book, A Radical Enterprise by Matt K. Parker. And the third episode of my podcast I've mentioned in this episode uh, where I interview him. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Hashtag shameless self-promo, but, but very nicely integrated. I mean, it wasn't, it, it flowed with the conversation. So props to you for that. Well done. All right. So I've got a couple of picks this week. One is technically related. The other is not. The first one, I mentioned on our last episode that uh, I've got a new project I'm working on, going to be using Go for it. So I've got to work on some Go skills. And I've been using a self-published book called Let's Go Further from Alex Edwards. And I've really enjoyed it. The writing style is great. It seems to be very comprehensive. And so if you've been looking for a reason or a how-to on how to jump in and start building API services using Go, I would recommend this one. He covers like a lot of the really fundamental concepts, like how do you do authentication? How do you do database migrations? You know, how does 
Go treat serializing and deserializing JSON and all that kind of stuff. So I've really enjoyed it and recommend that. The second one is like, how do you stay focused at work? And one of the cool things is when like video games all have music, right? And it's not just like randomly picked music. The music in video games is specifically created to keep your attention on the game, you know, using background music to set the mode and keep you immersed in it. And so a lot of times I will go to YouTube and find a video game soundtrack to play while I'm doing work. And it's surprising how well it works to just keep me immersed and sucked in on my work. And I'll come back to reality a couple of hours later and go, wow. That was deep. And one of the soundtracks I I use to do that is from the game Skyrim. So I'll post a link for an 11 hour YouTube video that's the Skyrim background music. I don't think that would help me concentrate because I've been playing Skyrim, the the new 10th anniversary edition lately. (laughs) That music is already like burned into my brain. (laughs) I've never played. I've played the game a little bit. My uh, kids played it a ton and I didn't realize it, but my youngest son, he, when I first started doing this, he kept walking back here to my office and sticking his head in and he would look around and then he would leave. <laughs> and then after several days, he came in, he's like, are you playing Skyrim? I was like, no, it's just the soundtrack because he would hear from wherever he was in the house, he would hear the the theme song, you know, and or the background music and knew instantly what it was. So that was kind of funny. <laughs> funny. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you for your insight. It's been a good chat and um, hope you all enjoyed it. And we'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.